far from the noise and pace of city life in the cool, clear air of Rishikesh, North India, Pathy News reports from the meditation retreat of Maharishi Maharish Yogi, the man who, through transcendental meditation, is currently bringing peace of mind to the Beatles. Flower-loving Yogi told reporters that his brand of peace of mind could only be truly appreciated by intelligent men of the world with rewarding activities and high incomes. Among his most valued disciples were the Beatles, top of the pop pupils. He did his best to keep them away from outsiders, but George had a way for us. Keeping company with himself, it could be part of the treatment, John stalked along the shady paths. Ringo enjoyed the peace of togetherness with Mrs. Ringo. It was a very peaceful scene. So different from those not-so-far-off times when just a glimpse of the Beatles was enough to ruin the meditation chances of anyone within earshot. Welcome this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, okay. We finally have a new release coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's not a box set. (laughs) It's not a box set. Although we still hope that there's at least one, possibly two or three box sets coming before the end of the year. (laughs) Right. Wow. It's July. We're talking about more box sets at the end of the year. It's just a little bit weird that we haven't had really much of anything for the first six months of 2022. They completely blew their wad in 2021. Well, you know what they're waiting for. Yeah. Christmas time (laughs) is here. So this announcement, you know, Ringo wants to get out ahead of The Rush. He has announced his third EP, which we knew was coming, tentatively titled EP3. Well, that's original. (laughs) Right. It's more or less what we would expect. As far as the song is concerned, or the title? (laughs) Not so much the title, but as far as design. And we did get one song, and we're going to talk about that just briefly here. Right. We'll talk about it more when the thing is actually released uh, in September. September the 16th is the date that has been given. It's another Steve Lukather song. Yep. The name of this song is... It's not a bad song. It's a guitar-heavy song. It is. <laughs> Steve is very involved. <laughs> I don't like it as much as the previous song, Change the World, but it's not bad. He's a talented songwriter. It's very much contemporary Ringo. And, yeah. you know, I mean, once again, 
he is altering his voice. He's doing the auto-tune thing on it. And Life can be confusing. It sounds really heavily auto-tuned when I'm listening to it through headphones, but when I'm listening to it on the stereo, it's not quite so bad. Right. Lots of guitars. The drumming is good. The more fake horns. It's out on YouTube. Um, you know, look for it. It's a good listen. Actually, these three EPs together will make a pretty good LP. Yeah. It fits in with, gee, this is just different enough from the other nine songs we've already gotten. <laughs> right. Put it together. That's what we're going to get. And Ringo tells us that he will have his own collection of all of these as an LP or CD this Christmas, which is why I guess he needs to get the third EP out now or relatively now. An album in three chapters. <laughs> the other yeah. bit of news which has been going around came from an interview that Peter Jackson gave. He has revealed that he is working on another project with Paul and Ringo. This project is, quote, not really a documentary, unquote. And he's also said that the technology to realize it to his fullest vision doesn't quite exist yet, but you know, it's the old Gretzky thing skate to where the puck is going to be. (laughs) Right. They're playing a little bit coy about what actually this project is. And it's interesting. It's a curiosity. I would guess it still has to be kind of a film related thing. It wouldn't be something like let's do a set of holograms for the star club. (laughs) Or, I'm going to take all the magical mystery footage and put in Spencer Davis and all the stuff that got taken out and redo the footage, and it's going to look great. One possibility, which actually does relate to our main topic here, you know, we saw little bits and pieces of the home movie footage that each of the Beatles took in Rishikesh. Maybe there's enough there that Peter Jackson can make a story out of that, which would fit the not really a documentary thing. Yeah. Kinda, I guess. Feature length, maybe partially dramatized making of the White Album, which would include all of that footage. Could be contractually obligated to call it what we did on our vacation, on our holidays. (laughs) Complete with film by John Lennon titles whenever John's footage comes up. Right. Because of favored nations, everybody has to have their footage credited. Burned in subtitles. (laughs) Taken by Paul on Tuesday. (laughs) we don't know that we intentionally don't know but it's still worth bringing up because that's what's going on in the beetle world put that in the back of your heads until it happens i expect that we will probably hear a little bit more about this as things are going on if they're hinting about it then it's probably a little bit further along than oh just it's just this idea I mean, they're pretty good about keeping quiet. It may not be a year, it may be two or five years off, but I think that something is happening. You know, after Get Back, one of the things we all said was, Peter needs to do more with the Beatles footage. And Paul and Ringo agree. <laughs> so since we're talking about Rishi Kesh, we are reviewing a film which came out a couple years back called The Beatles and India. Now, this is not to be confused with the Paul Salzman documentary, Meeting the Beatles in India, which was out about a year before this project. So that title was taken, and now it's The Beatles and India. Briefly, the Salzman documentary, Paul Salzman took all of those really great photos of the Beatles in Rishikesh. Published a book sometime back of all those photographs that 
first look at the Beatles in India. He tells his story, and he, he has a lot of personal stories of uh, getting into the camp and really literally hanging out with the Beatles, and, and uh, then how that would then influence his further life. And he also talks to a lot of people that were there in the camp. He talks about the real Bongo Bill, who we hear a little bit about in this film, although he actually interviews him. He's now a wildlife photographer for National Geographic, the real Bongo Bill, that is. Well, it's good that he made something of himself because I didn't really like him in the song. He's not a good guy. He's still out there shooting tigers just in a different way. <laughs> just, just photograph, yeah. Anyway, we will compare and contrast the two projects. Uh, the Salzman film is, for whatever reason, not available on streaming or on DVD or Blu-ray. So there might be a copy available through Microsoft. They list it as such, but I haven't investigated further whether you can actually buy it and download it from Microsoft. You know, I've just been running through the, the lyrics of uh, Hongo Bill. Does it ever really say? I mean, maybe he was shooting with a camera. The children asked him if to kill was not a sin. His mommy butted in. If looks could kill, it would have been us instead of him. All the children sing. Hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill. Hey, Bungalow Bill, was it a thrill? Bungalow Bill. This film is The Beatles and India. It was based on a book called Across the Universe, and it more or less covers the story of the Beatles' interactions with India, not just with the Maharishi. And in fact, as we'll go through, they kind of go back and forth on whether they think uh, TM is good or bad or whether it was just all a sham. You got different people with different ideas on that matter. Right. Salzman is a TM advocate, so be aware, should you find a way to get the Salzman film, uh, there is some TM propaganda in there. India, a place of spiritual enlightenment. What happens when a 23-year-old Westerner goes there in search of himself and he finds the Beatles are there too? I was heartbroken. Your story is incredible. True happiness is not out there. True happiness lies within. They took me into their group. Within 30 seconds, they really were just themselves. The stuff we're talking about comes really towards the end of this film as far as the opinions on TM and it presents a point of view and doesn't really present the other side other than the advocacy of certain people there. About half the film ends up being about the Beatles and the Maharishi and the trip. And then the other half is about the relationship between India as a nation and the Beatles. This was the first time the Beatles had, uh, as a group, come to India. And they symbolized to us not just a new kind of music. It was almost like symbolizing a new kind of life. It was, they, they represented the whole 60s to us. Well, that was the, the, the thing that I really liked about this film, is that it is, for the large part, 
it's from an Indian perspective because early on in the film, it talks about George's attraction to India. A retelling of a story that we've heard several times and is mentioned in anthology that George's mother actually tuned into the BBC World Service and listened to Indian music because it calmed her down, apparently, when she was pregnant with George. Right. That's part of the family legend. And it's that. But it also talks about the impact of the Beatles on Indian society. That in a lot of ways, they were just as taken by the Beatles' music as the rest of the world. Yeah, there's a band in here, and we'll get to it shortly, called The Savages. And they actually talk about how it was the Beatles that changed things for them. Right. And again, at the end of the film, it interviews several contemporary Indian artists and the impact that the Beatles had on the art. And even the way Indian society, how it viewed itself, because the fact that the Beatles came to India and had a reverence for Indian culture had an impact on Indian society. Now, here's the biggest man in the world, and they're coming to play with our musicians. They kind of mentioned that India almost adopted them as second sons. Right. There's a great quote by one of the musicians again later on. I mean, he was born in 74, I think he says. So it's after the whole phenomenon. And he became a professional musician. And it was later in life that he learned that the songs that he really liked were off the White Album, mostly written in India. And he felt like that was actually part of the appeal for him. The songs that they made in India, in Rishikesh, I had no idea. And out of them, some of the songs like Blackbird, like Dear Prudence, like these are some of the songs that I used to perform in my old band uh, in Chennai. To have known that they have written these songs in India, just gave it so much more meaning because I used to connect to these songs as a, as a classical musician more than a person who loves English, English music. I was born in 74. So for me to get to know the Beatles happened much later. We were not really born at the time when the dressing, how a Beatles haircut or the dress that they wore really attracted us. We, I mean, we didn't see that. We only heard the music. It's purely the music. It starts off, and one of the shortcomings is, uh, as with good old Frida, it does, when they don't quite know how to proceed, fall back on just the slightly well-worn Beatles story. But when they're talking about the early days, there is an anonymous Liverpudlian voice talking about living next to the Harrisons. What was strange for me was the music coming out of the house of number 12, the home of the Harrison family. George's mother, Louise, loved to listen to Indian music on the radio. I'm told that it helped to keep her calm during her pregnancy. This person is not identified on screen and is not identified in the credits. I really want to know who that is. <laughs> but he lived on Arnold Grove. The Grove was a really neighborly place, and we were always in and out of each other's homes. We get a bunch of assorted footage. Uh, there's footage which they use a lot of... Um, <laughs> I've seen the whole clip, it's available on YouTube, of Bollywood Beatles. They have to kind of tell the story, for sure. But they relatively rapidly get into... To help and rubber soul. Yes. I thought one of the things that I found really interesting 
was one gentleman uh, relating in a way how offensive help was to Indians. It was the stereotype of the bloodthirsty cult, and it was insulting to them. Well, and that Kaili is just a play on Kali, which is an actual deity in Indian religion. It's like, uh, okay. We do have to wonder what exactly is going on here. I speak, of course, of Kali, Hindu goddess of death and time, whose image is so fearsome and terrifying that she was used as the basis for a demonic idol in the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom which is unfortunately how many people in Western countries may know of Kali. Without going into the somewhat problematic nature of that movie and much else from the 1980s, let us simply say that this was not a very good representation of Kali Ma, or Ma Kali as she's also known. Most people probably realize that, but... I can kind of see that, although, you know, they are equally satirical on Western religions. The whole business with the uh, Catholic priest talking to Klang, you know, Right. Well, right, but, we don't we don't subscribe to the uh, beheadings and such, but right. So there's that one scene, but it's about this thing, and you can see how it came about because the story is kind of a James Bond spoof, and they didn't have the villains that James Bond had, uh, Spectre and all that. Uh, so they use this, you know, Eastern cult. It was interesting to, to realize that that film didn't play well. <laughs> well, I don't know if, it, if if they're saying it didn't play well. They're saying that it could potentially be pretty offensive to a lot of Indians. I don't think potentially is really the word. <laughs> I think it would be like, in this country, Native Americans looking at an old Western where they're all savages. Let's just say it wouldn't be made today. It was a very inappropriate film for most Indians because that film really lived up to all the stereotypes about India, about bloodthirsty thug cult. Uh, the goddess, which was named as Kaili, was really based on a real goddess, the Kali goddess. Hindus are very reverential to her. So the whole film would be offending a lot of Indians. Right, somebody probably would have worked harder at it, although... It might have ended up just centering more heavily on the Victor Spinetti character. I mean, he's the one who wants to take advantage of it. Yeah, you could have worked that story somehow without the Indian religion aspect of it. But as I said, I think it was to uh, play along the James Bond vibe. So the two instances they mentioned from the film, uh, the scene in the restaurant with the Indian quartet and how that was George's first real exposure to the sitar. This was the first time he'd actually seen one, apparently. There was some Indian musicians in a restaurant scene, and I kind of messed around with the sitar then. But during that year, towards the end of that year anyway, I kept hearing the name of Ravi Shankar. I heard it about three times. And about the third time I heard it, it was some friend of mine. Roger McGuinn and David Crosby and those guys. um, Who said, Oh, have you heard this person, Ravi Shankar? I think David Crosby definitely introduced him to that. But I think that's why George viewed the whole experience as connected. It was the sitar on the film. He also was handed a book. That was a story that I hadn't heard before. While they're on shoot at Bahamas, they suddenly come across this very diminutive yogi who cycles up to where they are and distributes this book 
but I don't think the Beatles paid him much attention. I think much later, he thought back, and there was this sort of very mysterious connection. Was that a religious book? They showed a book on yoga. This is Vishnu Devananda, the first illustrated book on yoga going across the West. Yeah, they move on to Norwegian wood. There's a story from the fellows in the uh, Asian Music Society, which we've mentioned in and out of several uh, other things that we've talked about uh, on the show. Well, one of the things, again, about this film that I like is that there's a lot of footage of people, you know, it's like, yeah, I've heard that story and I've read the story about how he broke a string and blah, blah, blah. But this brings a lot of footage together that I hadn't seen before. And the yeah. interviews, they interview almost everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly on the Indian side. I mean, you know, it, it's on and off with who they get from the UK side, but the on the Indian side, everybody's there, everybody they could possibly get. Yes. And being from an Indian perspective, they have all the people to interview. And they know who to interview. Yeah, so George broke a string. EMI told them to call up the Asian music circle and... They phoned my father. And he did have one, amazingly. He did have a set of um, sitar strings. Ringo called and the guy who answered the phone was like... Uh, and he was shouting down the telephone, Ringo who? Ringo who? And it turns out that he did indeed have a, have a set of strings for the sitar. How many strings are on a sitar anyway? There's a lot which is, I guess is one reason why the Westerners tended to prefer the electric sitar, where there's only, what, six strings. Right. To call them the same instrument is terrible. <laughs> Indeed. The fella had a set of strings, and the whole family loaded up in the car and went down to EMI and delivered them and watched the session. So the whole family got in the tiny little car and they all drove to carry one string to, to Abbey Road and there they handed it over and they watched them recording. That's great. <laughs> so from that, George was to get involved with his family. It was largely just social. And George was fascinated by our family and so he was invited round to spend the afternoon. I think he came round for lunch. Patty was there as well. And then George came quite regularly. And they were all too happy to have a beetle around. It really could have been anything. It could have been like, I'm going to get to know these people because of the music. And then the chemistry was good and they became friends and he hung out at their house. And I guess you might think that they, being the Beatles, would be standoffish, but that's not the case at all. So hanging out with his family, they then decided, oh, you know, Ravi comes over periodically and George comes over periodically. Maybe we can get the two of them together. And depending on when that was, he would have heard of Ravi Shankar by that point. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't, surprise, here's Ravi Shankar. Harrison might have desired to meet him, and so they set that up. There was certainly something going on. Paul was the first to arrive. I, I never knew Paul was at that meeting. They were expecting George, and they went to open the door, and there was Paul. That still makes George mad. <laughs> <laughs> it was my meeting, damn it. <laughs> From what they said, Paul seemed a little less interested in the events of the day, although he, he may have just been there to kind of watch and observe. I mean, that's kind of his character. As they say, when one of them does something, all of them do something at that point in time. Yeah, perhaps. Then the story there is, even in this Indian family, Paul was smoking and smoking and smoking. And My young sister went around collecting the cigarette butts to take to school the next day, the used cigarette butts. Then we move on to... This was the first time the Beatles had uh, 
as a group come to India. And they symbolized to us not just a new kind of music, it was almost like symbolizing a new kind of life. It was, they, they represented the whole 60s to us. The chronology of this is sometimes a little weird. They're trying to make subjects fit together. Much like Frida Kelly's good old Frida. Is it right chronologically or they're trying to put the pieces together? I sat near the lift and I waited for Brian Epstein to emerge. They have an Indian reporter who, now this I didn't quite get. He, he goes up to Brian and says, The government have scheduled an interview with the Beatles. Uh, did the Indian government er, have that much power? Or the, what, what, I didn't understand what was going on there, how this interview was supposed to have been set up. I just assumed he was bullshitting. Oh, yeah. that could be. So Brian absolutely refused. I mean, this was 1966, just after Manila. So we know where, where their minds were at. And during the course of this, Brian was getting sick. Brian just went off and had a little fit there. I will not permit this. He said, well, I will give the interview. I said, good enough for me, sir. Brian Epstein, good enough for me. If he, one, is getting sick, and two, they just had that horrific experience in Manila, I'm not surprised. He's like, no, <laughs> you're not going to get an interview. After he talks to Brian, Brian does indeed take him up, and uh, they didn't do an interview, but he did actually get to meet and talk with the Beatles. At 7 o'clock, I go up in the lift. I get out, and I walk to the end of the corridor. I knock, and there's Brian Epstein in a bathrobe, sweating. He emerges, walks me across the length of the hotel, opens the suite door on the other side of the floor, and there I was in with the Beatles, all four of them. Brian was in a bathrobe, so yeah, he was getting ill at the time. We get some other figures who were there in 66. The daughter of a famous war correspondent from India who says, you know, I, I really wish it was me who was sitting there between John and Paul, and it's like, okay. They showed the picture, and she's not sitting between John and Paul. I think she's sitting between Paul and Ringo. So get your Beatles right. <laughs> she just remembers that her mom was sitting between two Beatles and wishes it were her. My God, I wish I had been that person sitting between John and Paul. So that's followed by George meeting Ravi, and Ravi invites George and Patty to Mumbai, to India. And they take him up on the offer. So we get a section here talking about the relationship between the two of them. I think Ravi laid it out pretty clear as to what was expected in order to be a student. And he ended up being pretty impressed by the uh, amount of work that George did put into it. Although the actual Indian musicians seem slightly dismissive of George's efforts, it seems. Well, most, of, I would say, all of those people were students of Shankar who spent years learning, you know, what he taught. And they probably felt like George was... An interloper. Who's this Western guy coming in? Yeah. And they also seem to be slightly jealous because the relationship was more than just teacher and pupil. They would become almost familial. They variously described themselves as either being brothers or being father and son, although they would exchange the roles of father and son. Sometimes Robbie would be the father, sometimes George would be the father. That's almost spiritual. And that's accompanied by some footage uh, of Raga which is stuff we've seen before, but it's good to see it here. 
Right. I mean, that footage was in 68. The film was in 74, but it was old footage at that point. Filmed in 68. The fans found out George was there. There's a story where we get cynical George. One of the girls actually breaks through all the guards, gets into George's hotel room, asks for an autograph, and George just sort of stares at her. And George Harrison asked what I was doing there, and I just said, I would like your autograph, Mr. Harrison. And he said, you know, he sort of, he wasn't too happy about me being there. I also said to him, he had numerous fans outside the hotel, and his words were, which I've never, ever forgotten, tell your friends if they like me to keep away from me, which I thought was rather nasty, but I needed the autograph. I like that story. He talks later about being on holiday and not wanting to be a Beatle at that point. He was a little frustrated with fans who couldn't see that he did not want it to be a 24-7 job. He wanted to be able to go someplace and do what he wanted and not have to deal with fans. It had ceased to be fun. The buzz had absolutely worn off it's like no this is just more trouble than it's worth yeah then we get a little bit on the wonderwall film they want to talk a little bit about george and recording india and i'm not sure why they went to that here well that was his next trip to india after 66 you know he spent 67 definitely being a beetle now we start talking to Indian musicians of the era and how they were influenced by the Beatles and, and how really the Beatles were a break from what they had known before. Which is, in effect, the same impact they had in the States. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you change the names, you change the accents. It's the bird story. The musicians those days were more into singing Jim Reeves, Everly Brothers, Pat Boone, and then bang came the Beatles. And it was like an electric breath of fresh air. One of the musicians talks about his mother going out and buying him I Want to Hold Your Hand and a British pop magazine so he could know what was going on with them. So he he must have had one of those cool mothers (laughs) as opposed to those folks who are just like, oh, well, you know, what's this? We used to play those records again and again and again. You know, somebody is listening to the words. You know, somebody is trying to figure out the chords. Yes. And some, the solos. Yeah, and the solos. And the most difficult part was the harmonies. Beatles still remain one of the greatest, you know, harmony uh, groups, you know, ever. You know, after we get a little bit more on this band, The Savages, they, they talk about buying Beatles clothes and how dressing up as Beatles and having the haircut actually turned them from wannabes into real musicians. They'd gone out to some slightly fancy club and everyone looked at them and thought they were what they were pretending to be. And the owner of the restaurant said, well, okay, you know, get up and play a song. And well, they did. That got them the gig, which would then get them a record contract. Really being the first Indian band to do pop music. Pain and The Girl Next Door are the two songs that they mentioned. If if you want to go look for them, they may be on YouTube. They probably are on YouTube. The other musician that's mentioned in there is Bidu, who uh, produced Kung Fu Fighting. That's a weird Beatle connection. Everybody was Kung Fu was a big hit in the 70s. There's a lot of things that were hits in the 70s that I'd rather forget. <laughs> There's a girl who was next door She's the kind of girl you won't know She's got everything a man could want But she doesn't know that 
knows I love her so much. He knows I need her so much. The thing is, as the music came to the fore, it collided with the drug culture. Now we get Mark Lewis and talking about there was drugs and there was Indian music and that for whatever reason, the two got conflated, even though there was no real reason to. Both of them had existed separately before people put them together. That might be an interesting subject to dive into. When did it begin to happen? Was it through movies or culture? Eight Miles High. I mean, you know, you, you get the birds and they're doing that sort of thing. And even though they weren't necessarily in the same song, you, you got Revolver and you got Pepper, both of which had Indian influences and had acid influences. So The hippies were the ones who caught on to Indian music and it just happens that most of them were, you know, like smoking pot or something. And since then, the two got caught up together, but it's really a problem. I like the stock footage they found. They found the most zonked out hippies at, it may be Monterey. Yeah, it is. It's like, okay, we get what you're doing here. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not sure, again, how those two things collided. Why people who decided to trip to... Sitars and, and Indian music. That's really a separate topic. I mean... Yeah. I mean, you could have gone to jazz. You would have been more messed up. And George kind of mentions that, I mean, at least for him, how Indian music was just that much more complex than anything that we had from the West. And that's why it attracted him. Do you like Indian music? I like some Indian music. It can get to be a little samey to my ears after a while, but that just maybe because I'm just not used to listening to the changes as they happen i would say the same thing of asian music china and japan there's a lot of really cool stuff there but i don't know if i like it enough to actually say i like it right it's kind of like learning another language exactly and some people will vibe with it obviously it was george's thing whereas the others oh well that's interesting and you know maybe I, i like this bit and i like that bit but they didn't really fall into it in the way that George did. His lifelong view was that it had always reached out to him. That story of him in the womb, mom listening to sitar music, and it connected with him instantly. So his connection was a true passion. Because I think the others, he was like, well, that's cool. Well, I mean, again, it's, it's like we were just talking about with Paul. You know, Paul was there to observe, to learn something. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that'll work but I don't need to go that much more deep in depth with it. And even really, as we get to TM, that's kind of still Paul's attitude about meditation. Right. Yeah. I've learned enough. I can take whatever pieces I need for me to live my life, but I'm not going to go and go chanting off a mountain. I do like the interview clip with Ravi where he says, I request my listeners to be in a clear mind because I like to put them, I know, make them high. Yourself. Music. Yes. Yeah. And I feel rather cheated when they're already high. What? The- <laughs> I think Paul was just too busy being Paul McCartney, you know. <laughs> well, there's that too. So they use this connection to take them into Eastern religion. Steve Turner makes the comment. Eastern religion, I think, would have been opaque to them. They wouldn't have been able to understand it at all. But having had that experience, suddenly these things made sense. I don't know. Maybe. Okay, so that's that guy's opinion. Several times people will say stuff 
as if, and this is the truth. But then you go, yeah, from your perspective, perhaps, but it's not necessarily the truth. George said that when he first took LSD, he heard voices in the back of his head saying yogis of the Himalayas. So that leads us into the Maharishi. The version of the story they tell here is a little bit different. Patty talks about Paul calling them up and saying, oh, we're going to go and see this fellow, the Maharishi. Paul phoned George and said, there's this man called Maharishi who's going to come to England and talk about meditation. The way I had always heard it was it was Jenny Boyd who then called up George and Patty and then they called up everybody else. Huh. Patty had seen the Maharishi months earlier. It was actually George Harrison's wife, Patty, who had heard that Maharishi was coming to town. And she said we should all go. Well, it was Jenny Boyd who had first saw the article in the newspaper. Maybe Jenny and Patty had gone first. Possible. They were a tight little society. Everybody was calling everybody else. Paul called. John called Ringo. Then we go through the Bangor story. We go through Brian dying while they were at Bangor. And not in this film or in the Salzman film. There's some really interesting bits and pieces about how they actually heard. And the fact that, you know, they, they were basically living in college dormitories where there was only one telephone. Right. And that's interesting stories, but that's separate from this film. We get a version of the shocked and stunned, although they seem to have cut the newsreel footage with some color footage they found, and that was also really pretty cool. I don't remember seeing the color footage before. I don't know that I have either. Then to take us into the Maharishi era, there's the quote, By this time I'd given him so much power, and how extraordinary that they were with Maharishi, who was now going to be sort of their spiritual guru, but also that they could lean on him because they trusted him so much. So for that moment in time, he replaced Brian. I don't know if I quite buy that either. I don't know. Maybe for John and George, Paul's deal was he heard and bang, he was off. I mean, he was not there at that press session. He was like, we got to take care of all this right now. Yeah. I think there may be an assumption sometimes that they all think with one mind and Mick Jagger called him the four-headed monster. But they all, all as I said, took off and John clearly was just shocked and stunned. And George was reflective. And Ringo was sad. But I think the idea that it was right there that Maharishi kind of took over, he did it in a way. He, he was the one who advised them how to deal with it. And it wasn't too much longer. You know, they did Magical Mystery Tour a week after Brian died. And then dealing with the Maharishi in Sweden. Yeah, telling Maharishi not to use their name. Right. Which will come up later. More than their spiritual well-being, they were very protective of the Beatles. And, well, of course, they still are. The entity of the Beatles rather than the band or the four individual members. Well, I'm sure that in the days that immediately followed Brian's death, they were being inundated with information that they didn't necessarily have or cared to know before, but they were being apprised of their situation. It's a little bit difficult to believe that Maharishi had the gall to release a record album as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the spiritual advisor to the Beatles, as the title of the record. It's like, yeah, that didn't tell you something? You are certainly aware, and probably a lot of people who 
listen to this show are aware of how proprietary rights and trademarks and everything are dealt with differently in countries. People think about them differently. They do things differently. And so that aspect of the Maharishi album with the Beatles name on it, I don't necessarily think he thought of as the same way as the Beatles did. So that leads actually into the business of the trip to Rishikesh. You know, the Beatles arrive and we see uh, a lot of stories talking about the setup of the camp before they got there. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. There's more on the ashram in this than, than I've really seen. It is worth getting the DVD or Blu-ray because they have individual shots of everything and they also have a map of the whole ashram where they figured out exactly where all these pictures were taken and such. And that is fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. The daughter of the caretaker of the ashram tells a story about how when they arrived that the Beatles just didn't quite get their ways. And yeah, different culture. And then John and Cynthia would go around holding hands and such, and it's like everybody looked at them and then kind of figured it out pretty quickly. It was not normal in Indian culture for couples to hold hands together and walk. And so they ended up adopting that practice. We get the story of Ringo and the beans again, although we don't get Ringo's other favorite story, which is... Uh, so I'd have me beans, and then I was getting fed up with that. And so the, I said, have you got any eggs? <laughs> <laughs> in the morning, you know? And so I caught these guys burying the shells in the ground as if God wouldn't notice. We get a couple of different versions of people's views of the Maharshi and TM. Do you think the Maharshi was really kind of on the level? I, I don't think he was a charlatan, but I do think he was seeking power and it's kind of a twisted version of real Indian spiritualism. Are you saying he's the Joel Osteen of... Uh, That's a pretty good analogy. Um, no, I think that, and I've believed for a long time, that I know people who practice meditation. Not necessarily meditation, TM. Well, TM. But I think that he thought that the power of it, if he really thought that everybody in the world was going to do it, that was going to change everything, that was a little naive. But it's maybe no more naive than all we are saying is give peace a chance. Uh, perhaps, but I mean, some of the things that extend out from it, the whole business of Vedic flying, which is, uh, it's people hopping around on their knees. Come on, folks. You know, the idea that through meditation, you can accomplish superhuman feats. No, you can't. Maybe you can get yourself calm. Maybe you can lower your blood pressure. Are you comfortable calling the falsities of this religion because it's that religion as opposed to i'm quite happy to call out the falsities of the catholic religion as well <laughs> right you know they they have their own weird set of uh stricture shall we say you're saying having beliefs is a bad thing i just think it's better to have ideas i mean you can change an idea changing a belief is trickier people die for it people kill for it the whole of existence is in jeopardy right now because of the Catholic belief structure regarding this plenary indulgence bullshit. Right. So I guess I would say then that he was a charlatan like a lot of people are charlatans. 
I think his belief was sincere, but you know, no, I haven't seen anybody fly. MIU, Maharishi International University, is nothing but bogusness, utterly incomplete bollocks. It makes a whole lot of money, but that might as well be Trump University. Well, what you say may be true, but I think when you get into religion and why people give and why they are part of it, you know, it's, that's a whole other thing to take on and to really call out one over another is, you know, it's like, I don't know. You know, I think Maharishi himself may have been on the level, but I think the organization became basically Scientology. Although Scientology, from the very beginning, it was intended to be a bogus religion. It's just that people started believing in it. Yeah, I know. L. Ron Hubbard. Three decades on, the Maharishi has learnt the art of raising hard cash as well as consciousness. He now heads a global empire that owns hotels, shops, schools, university campuses, factories and other prime real estate around the world, including Australia. The Maharishi is essentially the Bill Gates of the spiritual world. He's worth $3.5 billion. I've seen enough of what the organization has done and I did actually, you know, back in college, they were still coming on to college campuses. I spent, oh, about a day just because I had a couple hours to kill one day on campus. And it's like, okay, I'll go check it out. And it's like, eh, that's not for me. But not only is it not for me, it's like it took on what I already believed. You know, but there are people who are involved in it that I respect. Certainly Harrison. Harrison was, was big into TM all the way through. And Harrison's show at the Royal Albert Hall will be a benefit for England's new natural law party, which has a platform calling for transcendental meditation to deal with crime and a healthcare system based on natural biological rhythms. And I don't hold anything against any of those people for their beliefs. They're free to believe what they believe. Anyway, that's not why we're here, as we say. <laughs> but, I mean, it kind of is because the film doesn't seem to quite know what opinion it takes of TM and the Maharishi. They go back between a number of different people, some of whom are clearly devotees and some of whom are complete skeptics. So that seems pretty neutral. You can make up your mind. I think it leans a little bit more toward the skeptic side, though. Although, you know, again, that may just be my impression of things. I don't know. I'll have to think about that because there's a certain reverence in the way it's edited. It's not mean. It's mostly not mean. There's the one guy who talks about navel gazing. Right. That's that guy. Okay. That guy doesn't like it. Gotcha. And I guess if that's the way I'm leaning, I'd go, yeah, fucking navel gazers. Or if I lean the other way, it'd be like, well... Huh. He just doesn't get it. Right. We get a couple stories about their time at the ashram, although not nearly as many as I would have liked. And this is where I think Salzman gets a little bit better into the Beatles' nature of what was going on when they were there. Uh, the, the, yeah. the, there are two really good stories that come out here. Uh, they talk about Patty's birthday party. Right. And I learned, oh my God, Patty plays the Dilruba. That was her birthday present. They hired in musicians from in town. They interviewed the guy and he talked about it. And he, he talked about Patty's beautiful uh, lilac dress. And it is a beautiful outfit. And she is a model. Well, there's that as well, yes. And how they decided to play within you without you because, well, that's almost Saraga. 
<laughs> right. And that leads to the tape, which we're all familiar with, the Happy Birthday Guru Dev tape. They did all of that. And, you know, so you got Donovan, you, you got Mike Love, you, you got them hanging out, basically having fun. Although someone apparently went and tattled on them to the Maharishi. Hey, they're having fun. They're not meditating. Which I found kind of funny. <laughs> we get stories that really they kind of just can't go into other than, yeah, they were really creative and their creative juices were overflowing. It's like, okay, because they don't have anybody who was there to talk about the business of songwriting. Again, Salsman goes into much more detail about that. The word was coming to Maharishi that they had suspended their meditations and that they were sitting and composing music things. There was some aspect of them songwriting that the Maharishi was not really appreciative of. And so my knowledge of how George was feeling, because he said at one time, we didn't come here to write songs. Yeah, but George also played a tape for Maharishi of the songs he was writing. During one of their sessions, he had sat with Maharishi and played him a tape. He's a hypocritical bastard then. That's kind of a famous story of him talking to Paul. I know of what you speak, but it's I don't know what that means. When, when someone said that the Maharishi wasn't particularly appreciative, I thought George and Maharishi were pretty close. The Maharishi's dislike of, of that aspect transfer, you know, helped George be critical of it as well. So Ringo left a couple days in. Well, he left about a week and a half, two weeks in, largely because he wanted to get back to the kids and, well, he couldn't eat anything that was there for the most part. So Ringo and Maureen leave. Then about a month later, Paul and Jane leave. I'd always heard that Paul wanted to get back and do Apple. It was interesting that Jane was the one who took. Yeah, that's the explanation given here was that Jane had uh, either had a booking before or she took one. She had to get back to get to rehearsals for her next project. Right. Then the film goes a little bit weird. <laughs> they go on a diversion where the KGB claimed that the ashram was a CIA camp to destabilize India. Right, with all the Americans coming there and training in the jungle the whole thing is bogus but they actually found someone who was kgb and this was apparently something that they were actually looking into there's a report the thing about this film is that this was presented like well here's this thing and there's no rebuttal but i noticed the indian man who is discussing this used the term useful idiots which is the vladimir lenin phrase used to describe liberals See, we've had Russian bots since the 60s. <laughs> there you go. It's all starting to make sense. <laughs> oh, good. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi obviously is not on the payroll of the KGB. But w whether he knows it or not, he contributes greatly to demoralization of American society. This is exactly what the KGB and Marxist-Leninist propaganda wants, to distract their attention and mental energy from real issues into non-issues, into non-existent uh, harmony. Uh, they do have a terrible misuse of Timothy Leary's quote about how everything is due to the CIA. I mean, he was talking about acid. He wasn't talking about meditation. But they throw it in here because they want to. And it does kind of tie back to their business of, oh, well, drugs and Indian religion or quasi-Indian religion are all tied together. Yeah. Then we move on to perhaps the real reason why John and George left. And this actually makes the most sense of 
all of the various versions of this story. Some of the women there do make clear that Maharishi was not the purest of souls, that he admired the female form. There's a quote there which is just laugh out loud funny. Well, if you have an ugly woman and you have a beautiful woman, of course your attention is going to go toward the beautiful woman. Yeah, that's real spiritual there, Maharishi. (laughs) One of the devotees describes going down to the prayer room. They go back and forth. Do we want to believe it? What do we think of this story? What's the point? It's like, is it real? Is it not real? They were four working class guys from Liverpool. They had an innate sense of not being taken advantage of. So when they get together with Maharishi, Maharishi is inevitably tempted to capitalize on his sudden worldwide fame because of the Beatles Association. It's a great illustration of why it's uh, one of the weird unknown things in their career because if it truly was a matter of the film crew which is one theory, is that they're going to be used again in a film. Well, I think that's a bit more than a theory. You know, you had the lawyers there with the contracts. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying, is that the reason they left? Or is it the reason they left Maharishi's dalliances? What really is the reason? One of them caused John to be very angry. And it was enough that that story was kind of out and George never said anything. Well, John, under the influence of Magic Alex, we must not ignore the Magic Alex factor, and and they do talk about that here as well. Right. Magic Alex was feeling left out of things, despite the fact that John described him as such, and Magic Alex certainly would have taken advantage as much as he possibly could. He didn't really seem to be out to do anything other than take the Beatles' money. Well, you know, there's a quote from Patty who said, Alex was a minx, a naughty little boy. He was mischievous, and he liked to be John's guru. Well, much like John, he enjoyed being a little bit of a troublemaker. And under the influence of Maharishi, John Lennon was maybe somewhat different, not his buddy. This was April of 68, and Alex was still around to design incredible bass guitars in January of 69. Yeah, this is true. Alex had those six months to build Apple Studios. The film story is still not completely cleared up, but the version of that that they have here is that Maharishi had agreed to have a film crew come in and film the Beatles and did not tell the Beatles. And then he also made a separate deal with a separate organization, Four Star Entertainment, for exclusive rights to Maharishi for the next five years. Right. He had a contractual situation within his own thing. And I don't know, there's not enough information to know whether it was like, well, you you come and you film me. It just so happens the Beatles are here, but he didn't necessarily bring the Beatles into it like, you're here to film the Beatles. Now, in the Saltzman film, he actually talks to the real Bungalow Bill, and the description that is given there is that John and George were driving out the front gate as the film crew was coming in the back gate. Again, that may be exaggerated a little bit, but that's the kind of feel that he wanted to give to this event. At the very least... There was business stuff involved that George may have been patient with, but John had no 
inclination to sit and listen to. And then there's the fact that John wanted to get back to Yoko. There's that fact. I left a little disillusioned and John was a little disillusioned when he came back and Paul was. George just loved it. Abruptly, there's the end of the Beatles trip to India and you, we get the normal sort of fallout footage. Did you, uh, did you think this man's on the level? I don't know what level he's on, but uh, he's on the we had a nice holiday in India and came back rested to play businessman. We go into the end of the film. We get a bit from Mark sort of telling us how this would all affect each of the individual Beatles. Really come back from this trip. They have kind of broken apart as individuals from then on out. So it never really is the same. There's that weird quote from uh, Cook Herrera who says that Maharishi told them, well, if you don't continue meditating, your band will break up. Come on. No. They could have kept meditating all they wanted to, and the Beatles wouldn't have gone on. That's what you say, but you don't know. They didn't. And they broke up. So I guess he was right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. That leads out into the end. Uh, They Don't mention the TM concert that uh, Paul and Ringo did, along with a bunch of others at at Madison Square, which I thought was slightly odd. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. That was the first time that Paul and Ringo came together after a concert for George. And it's like, oh, well. And it was a TM deal. They also don't mention that the whole George's final concert in the UK was a benefit for TM and the political candidates that TM were backing. The Looney Party. Yeah, exactly. So, well, yeah, they also tell uh, the story about uh, George coming to Maharishi and apologizing for the way things ended in '68. And according to the story, he said he didn't remember. And then George basically said, "Oh, you got to be kidding!" <laughs> you know. Maharishi apparently said to George, he believed that the Beatles were angels on earth and that they were not guilty of any crime themselves. So when George came away from that meeting, he felt cleansed of his guilt of the method of the departure back in 1968. And in perfect Paul McCartney fashion, he describes taking James and Stella down to meet him, and he described Maharishi as being a spry old codger. I love that. That also tells you, well, here's exactly how much spiritual value Paul Puts in this guy. He's old and he's still doing stuff great. Good on you. I think he lived to be, what, 90? He died in 2008. Maharishi, that is. And they make a big deal out of Maharishi dying. It's like, oh, and Maharishi died and then the storms came and then there was not quite devastation, but the mountains fell and everybody was sad. The day when the Mahasyogi died, there was a big storm the water from the river Ganges and came whirling up and it showered in this bungalow. The local fox who came here to pay their tributes to Mahashi Mahishogi was amazed to see this supernatural thing. It was a power of Mahashi which brought Ganga on this top of mountain. Are the natural disasters directly related to Maharishi's death. How close in proximity did they occur to when Maharishi passed? It's like, okay, well, I will let you believe that. Yes, and that's what this film does. It says, these are some things people believe. So if they believe that it all had to do with the Maharishi's death, okay. Could be. 
Maybe not. I don't know. I wasn't there. There's a lot of interesting little bits in this film. In places, it's a little bit difficult to follow, I think. But I like it. Well, at the very end, it, it discusses you know the impact on Indian culture. All these artists come and they give their opinions of how they grew up and impacts the band had. There was one musician named Neil McKenzie, I think his name was, McKenzie. He said, the world would have been so dish without them. <laughs> I think that sums it up for all of us. <laughs> Eastern, Western, Indian, UK, American. That's a truism. Right. <laughs> and then George Harrison gets the last words. We are all spirits just encased in bodies. Living in a material world. Which is, in itself is interesting because there was that quote from Ringo earlier in the film is that how God's truth seemed to have been replaced by having the biggest bank balance. Yeah. It's a good film. It's not a great film. It's worth seeing, certainly if you're the type that will spend an hour listening to us talk about this film. Yeah, I think for people who are into the Beatles, it's it's a really good view of things. You'll see footage you haven't seen, and you'll hear interviews you haven't heard. And there's some really good perspectives of the Beatles phenomenon from an Indian standpoint and the impact they had on that culture. And the differences and similarities are also fascinating to sit and consider for a little bit. Yeah. I would still probably give it a B. It's good, but not as good as it might have been. Well, yeah, it's hard to beat Get Back. (laughs) That's the film right now. Good old Frida, which also has its faults, is probably a little bit better, to my mind. Okay. I'm not sure I agree, but... That goes down to personal taste, really. They're very different films, of course. Right. This is a film that looks to give you as much information as it can kind of eke out of tentative thing. And Frida Kelly's film, she spends a lot of time not telling you things. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Next week, we had so much fun with our speed round a couple weeks ago that Martin has come back. And so we're going to have part two of speed round next week. Going to do it again. And then I'm off to the fest, and we have some special programming, which uh, will come out shortly after. Yeah, stuff to look forward to. All right. And then, well, it'll almost be September, and we can review Ringo's EP, although that won't be a whole show. (laughs) Well, maybe we could stretch it out. (laughs) Well, or we could get Ringo on with us. That would make a whole show. That that could. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Now, two by two, the world-famous quartet stroll quietly in the lovely meditation preserve. Paul and Ringo shed the cares of their successful world. Close behind, George and John, complete with blanket for even more peace.
that great screen star Greta Garbo used to crave solitude. In these days, it's even harder to come by. But the Beatles have found it. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 